The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. No, do not sit back down in your bed or your couch as you've been doing. No, no. Keep standing. Although I know some of you kept standing at home even. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We will, in our measured return to the various things that the Lord has allowed us to do to fulfill our mission of God's glory, equipping Christians to worship God and reach Birmingham, to reach the world for Christ. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, God's Word. We're going to look at verses 14 through chapter 4, verse 2. But I'm just going to begin in verse 14 and I'll just read down through verse 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of God abides forever by his grace and mercy. May his word be preached for you. Please be seated. I uh, Let me uh, confess up front and um, unabashedly, and maybe something you probably suspect, but I do want to tell you, um, I love you, and I also love God's word. I love God's word dearly because it tells me how to love you. I love God's word dearly because it is inspired and errant. And it is sufficient. But I love God's word because when God's word came to me with the pinnacle message of the gospel, I found out that God loves me. And that he loves me through his son to save me from my sins. I love God's word because of that message. You see, I can't know and you can't know the God of the Word without knowing the Word of God. Now, I will confess quickly that you can know the Word of God and not know the God of the Word, but you can't know the God of the Word without knowing the Word of God. So I love the Word of God. That I can know God who is my Creator, my Redeemer, and my Sustainer. And I love God's Word because I found out the love of God from His Word, through His Son Jesus, by the Spirit of God, The one who came and died on the cross to save me from my sins. And the one who took me where I was but didn't leave me where I was. I love God's word because it informed me. And it informs me. It shapes me. It it exhibits God's patience with me. I love God's word for all of those things. That he took me where where I was but to save me. But he has not finished with me. I am not where I want to be. But I praise God, I'm not where I was. And that's because of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. I love God's Word. I love God's Word because what I've seen God's Word by God's Spirit to the glory of Christ do in my family. 
I've been blessed by God's word as God's word has worked in the life of my wife and blessed me in so many ways and our children and our children's children. I love God's word because not only do it do a saving work in Cindy's life, but we've watched it do a saving work in all of our children's lives and in their spouse's life. Now we're watching God's saving work in our children's children's I love God's word. I love God's word because that glorious message of the gospel and all of its all of its implications in the whole counsel of God is glorious. I love God's word because of what I've seen it do in the lives of God's people. I've had the privilege to pastor three churches. And I've seen God's word save men and women, change men and women, save marriages, save lives, be at work in families. And I've seen God's word even in these last two and a half months be at work in the lives of people. This is why, because I love God's word, this is why the main menu of the ministry of the word that I am supported to work hard at the preaching and teaching of the word, why our main venue is what we call expository preaching. It's an attempt to obey Paul's word to Timothy, preach the word. But even then you need wisdom. As you preach the word of God consecutively through a book, which book would God lead me to preach? What book should I be preaching? Or as we have in the last seven weeks, instead of expository, I've done topical expository. Knowing all of the questions that were coming in the context of of how to respond to government and culture and um, medical and viruses and all of that. How do you respond in a day of crisis? So I did the seven sermons on crisis and the Christian And what we did was topical expository. We just went to seven crises in the Bible to distill the lessons of how a believer responds to crisis in light of the sovereign sufficiency of God's grace and mercy. And interestingly, when I was getting to the end of that, the seven lessons, Governor Ivey came on the next day and said that we could begin to meet together with social strict social distancing. I think she heard that I had finished my sermon, so it was time to make a change. That was a joke, folks. Uh, That was that probably didn't happen. But I but uh, anyway, thankfully, she did make that change. And I was faced with where do I go from here? Do I go to a book of the Bible for just consecutive expository preaching? And I decided not to for a number of reasons. But let me give you just one. And it comes back to God's word. I have been the privilege as a pastor during this time to see many people in this present distress benefit from God's grace and how he sovereignly was over them as we just sung and what he did. I have seen people come to Christ this last seven weeks. Have they grappled with the word that they hadn't grappled with before? That this present distress caused them, called them And gave them the opportunity to stop and listen. And then God gave them eyes to see and ears to hear. And I have seen believers who were wandering call back. I have seen people renewed. I have seen people recalibrated. Even last Sunday's sermon about how a crisis is used to realign a believer. I've seen people get realigned. And yet I know we still got challenges ahead of us. So how can we 
grow from where God is working on us in these last couple of months, anticipating of what he's going to do out there. But what is he going to continue to do in here? How can that realignment go more, even more aligned? How can that recalibration get get deeper in the habits of my heart? How can I get focused on the essentials of my life? And I know one of the things that the Bible uses and one of the things that we've used in church history for people to make sure they know God's word so they know how to deal with life. No, I do not form my Christianity by what I see and by what I experience. I form my Christianity by what I've heard from God's word that allows me to understand what I see and what I'm experiencing. Many of us want the sophisticated insights. But what we really need are the essential insights that lead to sophisticated abilities to understand. What are those essentials? I honestly do not know of a better collection of essentials to develop a life that is framed and filled and founded upon the word of God than the foundational doctrines that are collected in the Apostles' Creed that have been used in the church for 1,800 years. And so I became convinced this would be that next series of topical expository. In other words, there are 13 doctrines in this Apostles' Creed. And each Lord's Day, we're going to go to one of them, but go to the key text that those doctrines are come from, explained by, and founded upon. And then try to understand them. And how this has been so gloriously used in the lives of God's people. And how can it be used in your life, Mr. and Miss New Christian? How can it be used in your life in the renewal God's doing? How can it be used in your life in the realignment that God is accomplishing? And make sure that... The calibration is from God's word, starting with the essentials. Folks, listen, if you build a, a, let's say a truss for a roof, and you build a truss and you want the truss to meet, the two trusses to meet, if you get off even a quarter of an inch at the bottom, at the foundation, it's going to be off inches, maybe even feet at the top. What we need to do is not go immediately to the superstructure, but go to those foundational doctrines and make sure we understand them. Because when you get to the more difficult issues and texts and issues of life, here's what you know. God will never contradict these foundational doctrines. I need to know them. So therefore, I believe that this particular Apostles' Creed is, is helpful to do it. And more than that, I believe that is the right biblical function of a creed, of a confession. So let me try to show you that from a text of Scripture. Would you go with me in your Bibles to where I just read? Don't close it yet. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 3. This is Paul's letter to Timothy, the first of two. And it's to him as he is engaged in a particular ministry. 
Can I take a minute to explain it to you contextually? Before we look at the content of these two, these, these few verses, it's that Paul has basically, Paul was the founding pastor of the church at Ephesus, which is where Timothy is pastoring when Paul sends him this letter because Paul sent him there. Why did Paul send him to Ephesus? Well, Paul started his ministry, started that church uh, with his ministry, and he was there for three years. That's the longest he was at any place. And as he was there for three years, God called him to go back to Antioch, go back to Jerusalem, and he was going to be put in prison. And that is exactly what happened. But before he left, he called the leadership of the church together. In Acts chapter 20, we won't turn there, I'll just share it with you. In Acts chapter 20, he called the leadership of the church together. And when he got the elders of the church together, he, he gave them an exhortation. They were, emo- they were so emotionally moved when he finished, it says they fell upon his neck, hugging and kissing him. Other words, there was no social distancing at that moment. They were just absolutely falling all over him. But in the middle of that text, in Acts 20, this is what he says to them. Be on guard for yourselves and for all of the flock, this church at Ephesus. Be on guard for yourselves and all of the flock of which God has made you overseers. The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then he said this to them. Upon my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, teaching perverse things and drawing the disciples away to themselves. In other words... My departure is going to create a vacuum. And you need to fill that vacuum. And the reason you need to fill that vacuum is because Satan will relentlessly, inevitably, attempt to use that vacuum to put false teachers teaching perverse things and false leaders who don't lead to Christ, they lead to themselves. And when that happens, I want you to be ready. They're coming in among you, the leadership of this church. Well, it seems as if they didn't listen. Paul went. He got put into prison. He was there in Jerusalem, Caesarea by the sea. He went on to Rome. And then he was freed from his first Roman imprisonment. And then when he was freed, at that moment, he hears that Ephesus is being decimated. So he sends his best man, Timothy, a man of proven worth, a man that he was dear to him. He called him his Padilla, his son in the faith. And he sent him there. And as he sent him there, he gave him a handbook on how to lead that church back to gospel health and vitality. And in the first chapter, he showed him, this is true teaching, and these are true teachers. Let's get rid of the false teachers. In the second chapter, he showed him about prayer and evangelism. Then in the third chapter, he gave him the qualifications of true leaders and shepherds, not false shepherds that are self-centered. And then when he finishes, he gives a summation of what he has yet said. Not a summation of the whole epistle, but a summation of what he has said. And he says this, I am writing these things to you in case I'm delayed. I'm coming. Believe me, good shepherds come to the battle. 
But I'm coming. But if I'm delayed in God's providence, I am writing these things so that, now watch, so that you might know. You can't know without the Word of God. You can speculate. You can intuit. You can imagine. You can philosophize. But you can't know. You see, brothers and sisters, let me, let me try to put it um, as simply as I can. Christianity is not a religion of intuition or imagination. It is a, it is a way of, tr- of knowing God, trusting God as creator, redeemer, and sustainer by divine revelation. By divine or the word of God. So I'm writing this so that you can know. Know what? How to behave. How to live. And then he adds an ethical word. How one ought to live. He doesn't say, he doesn't give a moral word. Should live. He gives an ethical word. How one ought to live in the household of God. God's church is a number, it's an army, it's a temple, it's a building, it's a field, it's all kinds of things. But one thing it is, it's a family. And this family is built on something and is built for something. Let me say it again. This family is built on something and built for something. That one will know how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, the living God, the church of God for the living God. It's not It's not the pastor's church. It's not the denomination's church. It's not even the member's church. It is God's church. God's household. How should we as God's people conduct ourselves as his family? We know from the word of God. Because we're given the word of God. Now look what he says. Which is the church which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. The pillar... And the buttress. In other words, the church of God is built on the Word of God, and it is built, it is built upon the Word of God, and it is built to uphold the Word of God. That's what a buttress does. I'm not a big architect here by any means, but I do know a buttress. I've heard about flying buttresses that look like they're disconnected, but a buttress is there to hold something up. A pillar is holding something up, a buttress. So the church is being held up by the word of God on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And it is called to uphold the word of God. Why? Because Satan is going to attack the word of God with false teachers and false leaders. So you are called to uphold the word that you're built upon. That the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Then, what does he do? Please don't miss this. This is the reason we're doing this series. When he talks about the importance of the truth, he goes to a biblical instrument used to teach biblical truth. What is it? A creed. A confession. This is not the only confession and creed in your Bible. You can find the creeds and confessions in the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, the book of Deuteronomy. You can find creeds and confessions in the minor prophets. You can find creeds and confessions, Philippians 2, Titus 2. Uh, You can find creeds and confessions in Ephesians 1. 
creeds and confessions have been developed in order that the truth has a, something used to collect it, to teach it around an issue, or they are developed to maintain a truth that's under attack. That's what they're there for. There are multiple confessions in the history of the church. The majority were developed to ward off errors. In the early church, there were errors on the doctrine of God, the Trinitarian doctrine of God. In the early church, there were errors on the person of Christ, that he's fully God and fully man. There were a number of different errors so that what would happen is the church would pull its elders together in order to establish a creed to refute the error. And so what would they do? They would, uh, the Chalcedon, the creed of Chalcedon. You've got the Athanasius creed. You've got the Nicene creed. But where I want to take you is to the Apostles' creed. It has been used to defend truth, but its primary purpose was to teach essential truth. As it was first collected in the second century. And that's why I want to go to it, because God uses creeds in the Bible to teach the Bible. Now, the Apostles' Creed is an extra-biblical creed to teach biblical truth. Therefore, it has to be checked against the Bible. And I propose to do that for you in the coming weeks, doctrine by doctrine by doctrine that's contained in the Apostles' Creed. So that's where we would be headed, and that's what we would be doing with that creed. But I want to show you something else. So here, go to chapter 4 and verse 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. In other words, Satan, here's what the Holy Spirit tells all of us. Satan is going to bring false teachers who are going to undermine the truth in the church. The truth that you're built upon and the truth that you're supposed to uphold. Satan is going to produce. And let me, this is so amazing. They are actually going to step brazen-faced, occupying pulpits that historically have been used for the proclamation of God's Word, and purposefully distort, deter, and detour people from God's Word. It is so interesting for me that how many times in my Christian life I have read sermons from pastors in pulpits, and I know the pastors who used to be in those pulpits and what they used to preach. And I read what this person is saying, completely apostate, heretical, error-filled doctrine. I'm not talking about minor stuff. I'm talking about the serious issues of the faith and is able to do it brazen-faced. They're taking the money of God's tithe for their support, and they've abandoned the word. They put their mind over the word instead of submitting to the word. And they're teaching the doctrines of demons instead of the doctrines of the word of God. And I've asked myself, how can they do that? And then I realize, Harry, if it weren't for the spirit of God, you would do it. 
Consciences seared and hardened. Teaching false doctrine. Now, make one more step with me. Here's the positive. The church, God's church, is built upon the truth and is built upon the truth to uphold the truth. And here, you're warned by the Spirit of God, Satan is going to attack the truth. Here's the positive, here's the admonition and the warning. And in between is this creed that talks about the mystery of godliness that is found in Christ, the incarnate Christ, who saved us, who ascended, and who is coming again. And there is that creed in between the negative and the positive. In other words, the creed was given in the Word of God to show us that a creed can be used to teach truth to God's people and to ward off false truth to protect God's people. And there it stands with its right use. So that brings me to our takeaway. That brings me to our takeaway of how we would want to handle this as the people of God. The Apostles' Creed is a gift of God's providence to His church containing essential foundations of the faith once and for all delivered to the saints to be used, this gift of God's providence, like even the biblical creeds, this is an extra-biblical creed that contains biblical truth. And we learn by looking at biblical creeds that have biblical truth how to use this creed in discipleship, in confession, and in unity. That we learn how to use it. This Apostles' Creed. The gift of God's providence. Now, can I just make sure we all know something? The Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles. Well, Harry, how did we get its name? Glad you asked that question. How did we get that name, Apostles' Creed? It was the, basically what we're reciting was put together in the second century, about the mid-second century. In other words... Do your math. The Apostles' Creed is apostolic doctrine faithful to God's word, but it was written by disciples of disciples of disciples of the Apostles. In other words, the Apostles' disciples, disciples, disciples wrote the Creed. And it's called the Apostles' Creed because it's faithful to the apostolic doctrine that is found in the New Covenant. That's why it's called the Apostles' Creed. But did you know something? It wasn't even called that for hundreds of years. In fact, the gospel work will go up into Europe. And the language of, the language of reverence and the language of knowledge was Latin. And wherever this creed was uttered, it was uttered with a particular formula. Now, we didn't do it this way this morning, but we will be doing it in, in, in the coming weeks. What do I mean? Normally, the way the creed was used in worship as a confession began with the leader of the worship service saying, Christian, what do you believe? And the Christian would say, 
No, I'm sorry. We'll start this way. Christian, what do you believe concerning God the Father? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Christian, what do you believe concerning God the Son? I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Virgin Mary, suffered under, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and descended into hell. Third day, He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and He sits at the right hand of the Father. From there, He shall come to judge the, the quick, the living and the dead. Christian, what do you believe concerning God the Holy Spirit? I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then you go on to say the rest of the doctrines related to the work of the Holy Spirit in this world in the, uh, um, in light of what Christ has done by the authorship of a sovereign father. So, how does that start? Latin. Credo, believe. We get the word credible. Credo, the deum. I believe in God. And so it would start each stanza. By the way, don't miss this. The great creeds, like the great hymns that stay with us, seem to all be Trinitarian. They revolve around the majesty of God in his three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when you would recite these truths of this ancient creed, 109 words, recited for 1,800 years, modified for a couple of hundred years, and as it comes down to us, that's what they would say. Now watch. You are saved by faith. You can't be a Christian until you believe. But the question is not, do you believe? The question also is, what do you? Satan believes. The question is, what do you believe? Do you believe? And what do you believe? And so they begin to understand their statement of faith, noun, the faith, was the creed. The act of believing is credo. I believe, credo, in what? This statement of the faith. This distillation of the essentials. Now listen to me. Not all of the essentials of Christianity are in the Apostles' Creed. But the statements that are in there are essentials. That's what they are. They are essentials. Not all of the essentials are in there. But those essentials that were collected to teach the believer at conversion and in discipleship were there. And so now this Apostles' Creed has been provided for us. And it's three. Why are we going to try to understand it? Because we ought to be using it three ways. Number one, in discipleship. Brothers and sisters, days of challenge, viruses, pestilence, war, business failure, difficulties, days of challenge, days of victory. How do I not get carried away with myself? How do I not uh, descend into self-pity in one? How do I not exalt myself in the other? I have got to know who God is. To have a sound life in this world, you've got to have 
sound doctrine. Sound lives are built on sound doctrine. And you, and when you build sound doctrine, don't build at the secondary, the superstructure level. Go to the foundational level to make sure that you are building on sound doctrine. When I was a kid growing up, I would come home from school in my elementary years. I would arrive at home, and as I got older, I liked to look at the newspaper when I got home. And so I would go find the paper, which had already been used by my daddy and mom. I I remember how it would be folded up, and it would be separated into sections. And I would go, what section of the newspaper do you think I read first? Huh? Sports. I mean, it wasn't even close. And with no shame at all. Sports. I went right to the sports section. Then when I finished that, what section do you think I went to? Comics. If one of y'all say the astrology section, I'm going to shoot you, okay? I went to the, uh, where did I go next? I went to the uh, comics. And when I went to the comics, where did I go first? No doubt. Mr. Schultz was my guide for life. Actually, Peanuts was my guide for life. So I brought one of Peanuts' cartoons for you. Lucy and Linus, my favorite. They're in a window. It's raining. Lucy's discouraged. She turns to Linus. Linus, boy, look at it rain. Linus, if it doesn't stop raining, what if it floods the whole world? Linus, Lucy, it's not going to do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that this would never happen again. And the sign of his promise is the rainbow. Lucy, oh, Linus, you just took a great load off of my mind. Linus, sound doctrine has a way of doing that. Sound doctrine has a way of doing that. It calms our fears. It bids our sorrows cease. Sound doctrine has a way of doing it. That's why we take essential doctrines. In fact, you know how they use this usually? Its number one usage was when people were converted, they were first discipled with this and then brought to baptism. This was, maybe put it this way, this was the curriculum of the early church's pastor's inquirers class. This is what they used to make sure you understood the faith once and for all foundationally with essentials. That's why ministers who say, I am not going to build wood, hay, and stubble. I want to teach the word of God, gold, silver, and precious jewels, so that in the day of trial, the wood, hay, and the stubble, it'll disappear, but the gold, silver, and precious jewels will only be polished. And I want people to know the truth that anchors the soul and propels the Christian life to grow. The second thing is it's a confession. We use a creed to make three confessions. 
We confess these truths to God in worship. We confess these truths to one another in fellowship. And we confess these truths to the world in witness and evangelism. I believe. Now, would you let me say this? That means, now we don't do the Apostles' Creed every, now we're going to do it a lot more this summer than we know. But normally we do it about every fifth or sixth week. Folks, I believe in worship. You're confessing this to God. It's not mumbled. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was dead and buried, descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. I believe in the life everlasting. Amen. And we're ready to confess that to one another as we encourage one another in fellowship in days of challenge and victories. And we confess it before the world. I believe. Yes, I'm guilty of being a Christian. I believe. Thirdly and finally is unity. Unity. Amos 3 3. How can two walk together unless they are agreed? So I'm thankful for the Apostles' Creed. I'm thankful because my brothers and sisters who confess it, there are things we can do together and walk together. Apostles' Creed Christians, we can get together and have Franklin Graham and go do a crusade together. Apostles' Creed Christians, we can get together and deal with this sanctity of life issue. Apostles' Creed Christians, we can get together and minister on issues of justice and minister and minister on issues. We can do all of those things together because we can walk together. Because here's where now we, we're not going to be able to walk where we disagree. But we can walk here. And in every church, you got 101 Christianity, Apostles' Creed. Then you got 201 Christianity, our confession of faith. But with, here's what I'm trying to tell you. And I, I'm, one of the guys I read is, I, I can't, I have to give him credit. I just don't know who to give. I think it was Al Mohler, I'm not sure. But here's the, here's the deal. Listen to me. Everything a true Christian believes is not in the Apostles' Creed. The doctrine on the inerrancy of the word is assumed, but it's not in the Apostles' Creed. Everything a true Christian believes is not in the Apostles' Creed. But everything in the Apostles' Creed a true Christian believes. When understood in its biblical context. Not all the essentials are even in there. And there are things we believe at other places as well. But this is one thing we do surely believe together. One time I was with my dad. I'll just finish this and we'll close in prayer. One time I was with my dad. And um, 
he said to me, son, t- today I want you to go with me to church. A friend of mine's joining the church. And I, I said, he said, I want you to go with me. I want to go and support him. I said, sure, dad. So we got, I was 14 years old. We got in the car and went to this church. We went into this church. Little did I know this church that I was visiting, thinking it was one off, was a church six years later I'd come to with Cindy and I'd get converted there. <laughs> but I didn't know that then. I just went to that church. And it was a Reformed Presbyterian church. And in the worship service, they, that Sunday, affirmed and confessed the Apostles' Creed. Well, I never heard that. You see, I'd been raised in a church that didn't do the Apostles' Creed. In fact, we were proud that we didn't do the Apostles' Creed. Here's what we said. No creed but Christ. No confession but the Bible. Now, little did I know... That actually is a creed. Little did I know that's actually a confession. But it's a very insufficient creed and confession. Because I can name five cults off the top of my head that would say that. No creed but Christ, no confession but the Bible. But they don't mean the Christ that I know from the Bible. Nor do they mean the Bible, even the Bible I know. I can tell you denominations that will say that within professing Christendom, that we don't mean the same thing. So it's a creed. That's a creed. It's just a very insufficient one. And so I've been raised that way. So when we did this, I said, Daddy, what in the world is this? I said, we don't do that, do we? He said, no, son, we don't. But you know, son, I think we ought to. I said, what? He said, yeah. He said, I want you to stop and think about it. You and I just walked into this church today to worship. We just heard from them what they believe. And they just told God what they believe from his word. Son, I think that's a good thing. Make the good confession. Use it to disciple. Use it. To confess to God in worship, to one another in fellowship, and to the world as a witness. And let's walk together because we can stand firm in it. Like a Martin Luther in the day of challenge. Here I stand. I believe. Let's pray. Would you just take a few moments in silent prayer? Let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. Today you might be here and you say, you know, Pastor, I've never given my heart and my life by faith to Christ as defined as I heard of him who loves me and gave himself for me to save me from my sins and that I can't be saved without him. And today, I believe. If you'd like to pray with someone, please let us know. We'll connect you to someone within the appropriate guidelines. And it would be our great desire. Today, you say, Pastor, I do believe in Jesus. And I praise God for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And would you ask the Lord to give us a great journey in these coming weeks through this that has come down to us.
from the word of God through the people of God, by the providence of God, that we will know what we're doing when we when we confess it and worship and witness and encouragement. We will know it. And we will know him as we use it in discipleship and we will know it so that these areas we believe and walk together. Oh God, may the unity of your people on essential doctrine be seen. May the confessing of that doctrine to you in worship and to one another in fellowship and to the world be bold and gracious and humble. And God, may we use these to grow in the foundations of our faith. For Christ's sake, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader. Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.